Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Hello, everybody. I am your pastor, John Middendorf. You just don't recognize me because I'm in a suit, so it must be Easter Sunday, and it is. We have had a great day already. This is the point in an Easter Sunday service when I would say thank you to all the people who made Holy Week such a big success, and so I need to do that again. I'm very grateful to my friend Jason Smith and to Zach Lacero, who helped pull together, along with a lot of other help, pulled together a great Monday Thursday. It just felt like us. It was informal, and that just felt like the way that we do the Monday Thursday service. It was just beautifully done. And then Tenebrae, gracious, uh, just this, an amazing time like it always is. Thank you again to Zach and to Aaron and to all the people who helped to make that Tenebrae such a meaningful, powerful experience. I'm going to come back to that one. I hope you got a chance to take a look at the, the vigil, the Easter vigil, the stories that lead us to and then through the cross. I hope that you got a chance to see all of that. Thank you to Logan Cruck and all the different storytellers who pulled all that together. And thanks to all of these people. You can't see them, but there are camera people here. There are sound people here. To all of our musicians and all the people who helped make this Sunday morning experience what it is. Thank you very, very much. Tenebrae on Friday night, if you'll remember, you had a little bit of a warning at the very beginning that at the end, at the end of our Tenebrae service, at the end of the Tenebrae liturgy, the musical, there would be 15 minutes of silence and darkness, 15 minutes. That's about how long people typically sit in here at the end of a Tenebrae service, in the silence, in the darkness, 15 minutes. And it seems appropriate In the age, in the era that we're in, the era of the coronavirus, it seems appropriate that we would have these moments of silence and darkness because that's what it feels like. In fact, i got to be honest with you, does it feel yet like Easter with all of this darkness around? Like Britt said right off the bat today, yes, it is Easter, and it needs to be, and the people of God need to remind ourselves. We need to be reminded again, and we need to remind everybody who will listen that our Savior was raised from the dead, and everything is different because of it. Everything is different because of it. And so we start a new series today. This new series is entitled Grace. It's entitled Grace, and, and I want you to watch how the grace functions a lot like the sin that we, that we analogized as smoke in our last series. Sin, you can generate this smoke yourself, or maybe you just walk into a smoke-filled room. Grace, you can be a bringer of grace, a messenger of grace, or you can be the recipient. If you walk into the right rooms, you can be the recipient of grace. Smoke can be found almost anywhere. Grace is found everywhere. Everywhere that we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Is this an appropriate time? Should we have postponed Easter? No, we need grace, and grace is there to be found. And so, it is the right time, though it is still a dark time. I don't know about you, but the statistics get to me. When I see a a rising casualty count, 
When I see that death toll rise, it gets to me because I realize that they aren't just numbers. They are people with first, middle, and last names. They are people with connections. They are people who have pictures up in somebody else's homes. That rising death toll really gets to me. But we don't have to just watch the news. We can just kind of look around us in our circle of friends and family and see that there is a lot going on that makes it feel like a very dark, dark time. People have lost their jobs. Resources are scarce. There are nights of sleepless anxiety. And worse than that, my friend, Pastor Mike Laughlin, after losing his dad six months ago, lost his mom this week. Lost his mom. And what's worse is at the very end, he couldn't be with her. He couldn't be at her side because of the stupid virus. Walt and Linda Crow, we've been telling you for a long time that Walt's been sick. And, and Walt, as you heard from Jason last week, he did pass away. But what made it even worse was that Linda wasn't able to be there as often as she wanted to be because of the virus. People, it feels dark. Should we have postponed Easter? I can tell you this much, and we will get back to this man again. Walt Crow would have none of that. Walt Crow would not have any any part of postponing Easter. In fact, he would say, man, this is when the people of God need to be the people of God, the people who celebrate the resurrection. This is when the world needs to be able to look up and see that the people of God are, in fact, a resurrection people. But resurrection comes to us in the midst of darkness. Resurrection comes to us, and perhaps it does its best work when it comes to us in the midst of of darkness, the Gospel of John. This is a perfect time to read the Gospel of John. The, the Gospel of John talks a lot about darkness. Darkness, which is the cover of all things done that are evil. Darkness where sin and chaos reign, where death and danger lurk. John is talking all the time about light for sure, but also about the perverse, pervasive and perverse nature of darkness. In John 1, in the beginning was the word, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You've heard all of these words. But then down in verse 4, In this Word was life, and that life was the light of all people. Verse 5, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. If we skip down to chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night under cover of darkness, and Jesus uses that opportunity to, again, use darkness as a metaphor and says this, light has come into the world, Nicodemus, but people love darkness rather than light, again, because their deeds deeds are evil. Even in John 13, in John 13, the Last Supper, when Jesus predicts that someone will betray him, The disciples are amazed, aghast, and they each say to Jesus, is it me? Do you think it's going to be me? And Jesus finally says, it's the one to whom I hand this piece of bread. He hands the piece of bread to Judas Iscariot, and Scripture tells us this. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately went out, and it says, and it was night in more ways than one. (laughs) It was dark in more ways than one. Even our scripture today, 
our Easter scripture. This is my favorite Easter Sunday morning scripture. It's hard for me to preach on any other scripture, although I have a, a wide array of scriptures to choose from. This is the one that captures my imagination, the one that grabs me around the throat every time. But even in this one, resurrection erupts into the darkness. Take a look at this. John 20, verse 1, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. Now, we know a few things by reading further into the chapter here. We know a few things. Mary is stuck in darkness. And it's not just because it was that particular time of the day. By the way, days way back when for the ancient Jewish uh, tradition, they started at nightfall. So there's no telling how dark it was. It could have been pitch black in the middle of the night, kind of dark when Mary Magdalene went and spotted that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. It was dark. And again, in more ways than one. Mary Magdalene's heart had been broken. And perhaps she even thought that her future was at risk. Mary Magdalene was a woman, and in that particular culture, in that day and age, it was dangerous for her to be outside. It was dangerous for her to be understood as a supporter of this one who had just been publicly humiliated and executed. It was dark for a number of reasons. And in her darkness, in her being stuck in the darkness, she assumed not that Christ had been raised from the dead. She assumed that something terrible had happened to Jesus' body. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, this is what I think has happened. This is my diagnosis. They have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Now, you know the rest of the story. So this disciple that Jesus loved and Peter, they go sprinting on to the, to the tomb to see it for themselves. The disciple that Jesus loves gets there first. He's faster than Peter, but Peter barrels on into the tomb. Then finally, John, or we think it's John, it could actually be Lazarus. That would be, be an interesting thing if it was Lazarus. Goes into the tomb and looks and sees the bedclothes, the, the burial clothes. One set over here and another set over here where Jesus' head would have been. And Scripture says this, the disciple that Jesus loved believed. Now, we're not quite sure what that means. Maybe it means that they believed that Jesus' body had been taken. Maybe it means something better and something more than that. I tend to believe that, that they were starting to put two and two together and see that something here was afoot. But they leave and return to their homes and leave frightened, stuck in the darkness, Mary there outside of the tomb. Verse 11, And so Mary is there, weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And the angels said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Mary is so stuck in her dark place that the words of these angels can't even jolt her out of her stuckness. She said to them, they have stolen his body. They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. 
When she had said this, verse 14, she turned around and she sees Jesus standing there, but I imagine that it is still dark and again in way more ways than one. So she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus asked her a very important question that you've heard before. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Please notice this, that even Jesus in this moment isn't immediately able to pierce Mary's perception of what has happened. Mary is gripping this darkness tightly with both hands, so much so that she can't even see that this is Jesus. I found this quote, one of my favorite authors, a guy who's written a book called Left Behind and Loving It. His name is D. Mark Davis, and he says this, Woman, why are you crying? Remains an arresting question, showing the disconnect between one's experience and the good news of the resurrection. The disconnect between one's lived life experience and the good news of the resurrection. I wonder how many of my own tears fall into this caveat. Amazing. She is so stuck. She is so stuck in her darkness and in her perception of what has happened. She addresses this gardener and says this, Sir, if you have carried him away, she's sticking to her story, (laughs) tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And that's when Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabunai, which means teacher. In other words, it was so dark she could not see with her own eyes. She could not see with her own eyes that this was Jesus. But somehow the very mention of her name, somehow when she could couple her name in his mouth, and then what her eyes could take in, finally then she's able to break into the light, at least a little bit, break into the light of the resurrection. Have you ever considered for a moment here how important to our Christian tradition Mary's sense of bravery and courage is? We might not be here today if not for the courage of this very strong and yet stuck woman. She braved the elements. She braved the darkness to go and mourn her friend, her Savior, She stuck it out, even though the disciples ran back home. Even the angels couldn't shoo her away. She was there. The gardener wasn't going to intimidate her either. She was a very strong woman. Jesus recognizes it, meets her there in that dark place, calls her by name, and calls her out of this darkness, and immediately she responds. Jesus said to her, okay, you can't hang on to me like this because I have not yet finished my work. I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Verse 18, this is important. Mary Magdalene, just called into ministry, though she had just moments ago been stuck in darkness, Mary Magdalene, who had been rescued by this resurrection grace, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. In other words, like Mary, perhaps you may not be able to see the resurrected Christ in front of you, but that doesn't mean he isn't there. Listen as he calls your name. Resurrection grace 
is on the way. Now, resurrection grace does not scold Mary for not believing. Resurrection grace meets her in the darkness of her sorrow. Resurrection grace overcomes her darkest doubts. Resurrection grace calls her by name. Resurrection grace calls her into ministry and equips her for that ministry right then and there. And resurrection grace transforms her into a kingdom builder, one whose legend and testimony continues to grow and glorify God who found her in that very dark place. Mary was a kingdom builder. Christian history records that she became a great leader and perhaps pastored a very large church. Because resurrection grace pulled her out of that dark place. Mary was a kingdom builder, and I know somebody else that fits that description pretty well. My friend, uh, my mentor, our white ninja, Walt Crow, was a kingdom builder. He pioneered the work of the Church of the Nazarene in both France and in Haiti. And while there, especially in Haiti, he didn't just preach, he pastored, and he built like people and ministries, but also buildings and churches. Listen to this story from our own Debbie McCulloch. In 2010, there was a catastrophic earthquake in Haiti, and we had the unique opportunity to respond through Heart to Heart International, and uh, we gathered a little medical team at OKC First with some friends and uh, went down to Port-au-Prince. And at the time, the Port-au-Prince airport wasn't even open yet, and it was just quite an adventure, but... The big story for me that came to my mind in the past weeks was Walt. And so when I heard about Walt going into hospice, I was standing in my kitchen and Hope was there with me. And I just, we stopped what we were doing and I told her the story. And so when you called me this week, um, I was so thankful to be able to share this with people. Uh, When we went to Haiti after the earthquake, it was 28 days after the earthquake, and the city was still uh, just in ruins. Um, Buildings were flattened. There was rubble everywhere. And we uh, went as a medical team and were setting up clinics in the community because people did not have access to care. Even 28 days later, they still had so many needs. And So we set up a clinic in a church, and it was uh, this gigantic rock of a church on the corner of two streets that was just such a presence in the area. The buildings around it were literally rubble. Um, At the time we were there, there there were no uh, big... Uh, responses by the city. They just didn't have the capacity to have any machinery out there and making any headway with anything really. And we showed up and, and this uh, church 
was the absolute best place that they had scouted for us to put this clinic. And uh, it was called Bel Air Church of the Nazarene. And so uh, we went in and kind of looked around the building and it's just huge and solid and it's just literally a rock. And we determined the best place for us to set up would be in this little hallway, really in the basement. It was secure and they could help with crowd control. And so we set up our little table, Teresa and I did, and we started seeing people. And a few days in, I remember thinking, you know, we're in the city 28 days after a major earthquake. They're still having aftershocks. Um, if, if there's another earthquake and this building comes down, none of us are walking out of this building. And, uh, but I, I wasn't afraid. I never felt like, oh, we've made a mistake. We shouldn't be down here. Um, you know, I just felt like we were right where we were supposed to be doing what we were supposed to be doing. And so we were there for, I don't know, 10 days or so, two weeks maybe. And when we came home the Sunday, the first Sunday after we came home, I was at church and I saw Walt and Linda. And we stood in the kitchen and they couldn't wait to hear uh, what Port-au-Prince was like. And they were asking me questions about the city and um, I started telling them the story about the clinic and the church that we were in and all of the people that we were seeing and the stories of the needs and stories of just the stories and their faces were so precious and As I told the story about the church and being there and the presence of the church in the community and the fact that it was one of the only standing buildings uh, for blocks, uh, I noticed the tears in Walt's eyes and the look on his face was so precious. I, uh, you know, told him that it was literally a rock in that community and was ministering to people during this time. And uh, he told me that he built that church. And I was just so um, thankful and grateful to be part of Walt's story and his ministry and his life's work in Haiti. And I am still so very thankful to this day for the ways that Walt taught me and uh, spoke to me about uh, many things, <laughs> many things, the way he teaches and mentors people without um, you knowing that he's doing it. Uh, it was just such a beautiful quality that Walt had. And so the church in... Bel Air, or the Church of Port-au-Prince, Bel Air Church of the Nazarene, uh, is still a rock. Uh, that clinic was operational for a couple of years, 
and uh, it grew and grew and was handed over to Haitians to continue the work and um, it's just such a beautiful legacy of Walt's life and Linda's life and their work there and their love for the Haitian people. So thanks for giving me the chance to tell the story. As you heard, Walt mentored Debbie as well. Not surprisingly, Debbie McCulloch is also a kingdom builder. She is all the time working to embody this resurrection light. Even in the midst of the coronavirus, she is working to embody this resurrection light. You see, because for those of us who have been gripped by resurrection grace, there are different ways to understand the darkness. Is the darkness the kind of dark you have as you're headed to midnight? Or is the darkness the darkness that you have when you're headed from midnight toward morning light? Can I say this to us? We Christians are the ones who acknowledge the darkness. You've already heard me do it today. We acknowledge that things are difficult. We acknowledge that there still are deathly circumstances and situations. But we are morning darkness people. In other words, it's always headed toward the noonday sun. That's who we are. Walt Crow. Everything he built, he built with confidence in his risen state, in his risen savior and in stubborn hope. Because that's what happens when the light of the resurrection overpowers you in your darkest moment. The result is a stubborn creative hope that always understands darkness as early morning darkness headed to noon and not midnight. My friends, all darkness is overcome in the resurrection. It's not that it doesn't get dark. It's not that there aren't still dark and deathly days to survive. There will be. There are even now. But death's days are numbered and darkness has been dealt a fatal blow. <laughs> light has arrived. Light is dawning and love has won. Resurrection hope and resurrection grace are out there everywhere waiting to be discovered by those who have the eyes for the light and the ears for the voice. At the end of my sermons on Easter Sunday, here's what I like for us to do. Here's what we like to do. This is our tradition, and it's one that, another one that we can't do today. We like to do what I call a barn-raising choir. The barn-raising choir, when we, we get everybody that we can, all volunteers get up on the platform, and we sing through the Hallelujah Chorus. Now, I have good news, and I have bad news. The bad news is we can't really do that today. We just can't do that today. The good news is, and I have two sets of good news, we are going to do that as soon as we all get back together. Again, I'm going to find this suit again, and we're going to do Easter breakfast like we always do. No matter what day of the, of the year it is, we're going to do the Easter breakfast. We're going to have a sunrise service. We're going to have the big barn raising choir. We're going to treat it like a resurrection Sunday because that's exactly what it will be. The other bit of good news is Dr. Rieger is going to play the Hallelujah Chorus for us later during his offertory. But there's some lines in there, you all. There's some lines in the music that we have heard sung today. Did you hear, did you hear in the song, the So Will I song? And as you speak, a hundred billion failures disappear. That's what resurrection grace does. It finds you in your moment of darkness. It finds you in your moment of doubt and despair. It finds you perhaps even steeped in sin and reaches for your hand. This is what love does. This is what winning love does. And in Handel's Messiah, you know these lines are there. If you've sung it even once, you know these lines are there. The kingdom of this world has become 
the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever, even today. Even on dark days, even on the days in this era of the coronavirus, even as we watch the death toll rise, we mourn and acknowledge the darkness. We mourn and acknowledge the losses. And yet, with our teeth gritted and our fists clenched, we insist that, yeah, but morning light is on the way. For us who believe and who have been gripped by resurrection grace, <laughs> we're in an eternal state of M-O-R-N-I-N-G, morning. It is the eternal dawn for us because of the resurrection. Now, your life might be very dark today. Perhaps you've lost something or you've lost someone. Please hear me say again, as we celebrate Easter and as we celebrate resurrection and resurrected life throughout these next several weeks, we are going to acknowledge your darkness and acknowledge that pain, acknowledge all of our darkness and all of the pain, and stubbornly understand that darkness to be morning darkness, as in we are on the way to noonday light when God will finish what God started in the resurrection. And so we will pray and we will come alongside you and we will cry with you and we will hope with you. We will hope with Mike Laughlin and Karen Laughlin. We will hope with Linda Crow. Even as we die, we are people who die in hope. And so we live in hope, we die in hope, we breathe in hope, we breathe in hope. Remember that from a couple weeks ago. The breath that you breathe, that wind, could also be understood, that word could also be understood as spirit. The spirit, the spirit of the resurrected Christ is available to us now. Resurrection grace is all around. If we will do the work and develop the eyes to see it or the ears to hear it when God calls us by name, even and perhaps especially when we are stuck in darkness. Resurrection grace is on the way.